My name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Julene Compton. Who? Director of such films as Stranded from 1965, Plastic Dome of Norma Jean from 1966, and Buckeye in Blue from 1987. A little less so that last one. Yeah, a little bit less so that one. But listen, over the past decade or so, there's been a great appetite to look beyond the established film canon, which, as we all know, has largely favored white male auteurs who work within the system. You, you know, you've heard it all before. Yeah. There's been a great appetite to excavate the other voices who were sidelined, first maybe by the film industry and then by film history itself. Yeah, once the film industry realized, Man, we can't make too much money off these movies people have never heard of, we can leave it to other people instead. One such recent rediscovery has been Julene Compton, who directed only three movies, the two most important of which never received any kind of home video release. Yeah, so you could ever. not see them unless you went to the UCLA archives. Right, and the UCLA Film Archive recently restored them. I think they first screened at the Metrograph in 2017. Mm-hmm. They, and uh, they were just released on a beautiful Blu-ray by Flickr Alley. It was a historian named Maya Montañez Smuckler who recently wrote a book called Liberating Hollywood, Women Directors and the Feminist Reform of 1970s American Cinema. For her dissertation, I believe, she was reading about 70s and 60s female film directors in America. And there was this one name that was like, who's this? Yeah, she does what I love doing, going through like encyclopedias of little bios and things like that, maybe looking at newspapers from the era. And she saw this name. And she saw that this person had directed two feature films and she went, I've never heard of this person before. And because it's particularly interesting, I think, because like if if you're like her, you know, the names of there's so few women directing Mm -hmm. movies in America in the 70s and 60s. Like, you know, the names of every single one. So if one occurs, that's like fuck that's like 30 percent of the people you know? it's like wait wait, wait yeah. what how is this possible i mean it's very possible if the film gets no distribution that it will never be seen her 1966 film the plastic dome of norma jean is probably the most known one now it recently screened at the tiff Lightbox here i think our friend peter programmed it there oh yeah peter kaplowski has been a big supporter of this film i remember him telling me this when he had to watch it like at UCLA. That's the only way they would let him see it. And And he's like, you got to see this. And I have to assume that another reason why these movies never quite entered film history is because they don't fit into any particular movement or any particular canon. She was a transnational (laughs) figure, you know? Yeah, she was. Like, if you look at her first film, Stranded, it's definitely playing in that kind of French New Wave with a little bit of Italian neorealism kind of in its bones. And I saw Elizabeth Perchel on Letterboxd compare her to Ray Dennis Steckler. And, you know, in a similar way to him, she seems to bring together so much of what was happening just in general circa 1965. Like there's there's high and low. There's a little bit of, you know, you see some Antonioni, you see some Agnes Varda and Jean-Luc Godard. You also see like A Hard Day's Night. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, the, the Plastic Dome of Norma Jean is very obviously influenced by the Beatles in A Hard Day's Night. What's interesting about Plastic Dome of Norma Jean is it, it has that Hard Day's Night energy, but but then it turns into what you would expect to see in the 70s, a kind of like stripping away of the artifice to reveal the kind of bummer reality of what's happening on screen. What I like most about her movies is that they're both beautiful, beautiful and horrible, you know, like David Lynch much later on. Uh, the beauty is always in the horror and mm-hmm. the horror is always in the beauty. And the films are capable of I mean, they have a very big emotional tapestry that they cover you know they're Mm -hmm. they're kind of funny they're melodramatic at times they 
go in and out of reality quite freely. And they also have a sort of off the cuff, like, well, you know, new wave energy to them, you know, that breathless kind of energy. I'm fascinated about how much she was involved in making these films. I mean, clearly she wrote, she directed, she starred in one of them. But if you even look at the technical crew, like the cinematographer of Stranded, that's the only credit that he has. But if you look at Stranded and you look at Plastic uh, Dome of Norma Jean, they feel consistent. Mm-hmm. So you feel almost that Julene was kind of the ghost cinematographer as well. Like these are full tourist projects. Now, Julene Compton was born in 1933 in Phoenix, Arizona. She moved to New York City at age 16 with the hope of becoming an actress. We both watched an, an interview with her where she mentioned that as a teenager, she was acting in theater in Phoenix when a friend told her, don't go to Hollywood, they'll eat you alive. What you've got to do is go to New York, become a Broadway star, and then come to Hollywood on top. That's your only hope of surviving. And she said that when she went to New York, she was very short, which in some ways did not help her for her dreams of being a star, but it did help her to be cast in children's roles. Yeah, she was five foot two, which I think was originally too short to be a dancer, too short to really be an actress. But yeah, like to be a child actor, if, if you were a child actor, uh, you had to work only certain hours. There had to be like whole entourage of like educators mm. and uh, physicians or whatever who followed Ugh, you all these rules to try to protect these children. I know. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Uh, but but yes, if you get a really short actress who can, you know, pass as a child, then Perfect. You have a bit of a career. But anyway, she became a working actress. She appeared in a lot of theater. She appeared in Broadway shows, but she realized pretty quickly that she would never become a big star. She would just be a character actress. Now, she did have very good connections. She was married to Harold Klerman, very prominent and notable theater director and drama critic. His friends included Stella Adler. Well, that was his first wife. Yeah. Oh, sorry. How did I how did I get that note wrong? <laughs> oh, I, you should know all the biography of all the New York theater actors. Okay, well, his friends did include Elia Kazan mm-hmm. and so like all those people. All, you know, James Dean and that whole crowd was like around. So, she realized early on that she wasn't going to be a great actress and star, but, <laughs> but what she can be good at is real estate. And that's where the real money is. And by the way, I think that's really important to underline here. It's hard for anybody to make a movie. It's particularly hard for a woman in the 1960s to make a movie. So both of the films that she directed, her first two, she completely self-funded. And the way she talks about it, she goes... Well, I didn't need to make my money back because she had accepted that she's spending this money on these movies that they don't really need to be distributed. So, yes, I mean, this is somebody who was able to make two movies before the system crushed her. Mm -hmm. And that is how she describes it. The system crushed her. And the only reason she was able to make those two movies was because, yeah, she had Mm $300,000 lying around, which is like what in today's money, like three million. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I mean, she owned these properties in New York. She was a landlord. Yes. Yes. That uh, didn't develop until a few years after that. And so her biography, because she was a fairly unknown figure in, you know, film history, there's not that much there other than what's come up in the few, maybe that one interview that she's done after the online screening of the Plastic Dorm of Norma Jean that came out and whoever updated this Wikipedia page. As well as, I mean, Maya Montagna's Smuckler's book, Mm -hmm. I think, has much more extensive biographical details about her or more extensive at least but she's also a figure who is also a little bit mysterious that like 
like for a long time they didn't know if she was still alive or under what name she was living under there were rumors that when they played her films at the Metrograph for the first time she snuck in and watched them but didn't do a Q&A and left that's fun to hear all this stuff even though that when you watch the interview that's on the new Flickr Alley Blu-ray it's like oh no she's just a nice older woman yeah. <laughs> like with lots of stories she's still alive by the way she's 92 so and, isn't uh, that nice she's lived to see her kind of resurgence <laughs> as Flickr Alley like quietly puts them out on Blu-ray and I only learned about it because I do a podcast about newly released Blu-rays like even Peter Kaplowski didn't know that it had come out he's like wait what that came out word will only get around yeah we're doing our duty here that's right but let's talk about her first movie Stranded from 1965 so Stranded is fascinating because it is her autobiography she stars in it and she's talked about how the main kind of thrust of the film of a woman looking for something questing for something and not knowing what that is has defined her entire life so yeah she said she talks about this movie as autobiographical which is interesting given what happens in it you know Compton herself stars as Raina an American woman in Europe who as the film begins is attempting suicide mm -hmm. she's walking into the ocean well because she and like it's not quite clear like who she's dating or their partners uh they break up because they don't see eye to eye mm -hmm. and then she tries to kill herself she's rescued and she says oh i've lost my hat mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and then she goes back and she meets up with her travel companions and they go for a tour of the greek isles and that's basically the plot i mean yes. she's got a boyfriend from america named bob and she's got a gay friend i mean the movie's kind of about everything and nothing i mean mm -hmm. it's touring the Greek Isles, a lot of time spent on the boat, a lot of time, you know, spent looking at ruins. But I mean, to say that doesn't quite convey the experience of watching it because there are just all sorts of like little things that are happening. Probably the most, you know, iconic sequence of the movie is when she dances in a bar just filled with men, which is just like Compton's entire life trying to do the stuff she wants to do. Yeah. I mean, it's a character study of this free spirited, sexually liberated woman. Mm -hmm. And by the way, crucial, it comes out in 1965 before this archetype was really, mm -hmm. well, I mean, the archetype obviously existed, but yeah, but uh, had not been documented in fictional films yeah i mean i mean she's like a you know a flapper 40 years later i think and i don't know if she was really aware of this i love how it never tries to just make her likable like she's flinty she's difficult and that's just who she is and that's what the entire movie is about well this is one reason why it took me a while to get on this movie's wavelength there are actually a lot of reasons why it took me a while to get on this movie's wavelength i mean first of all it's beautiful it's stunningly beautiful just from the first image uh those seaside scenes are very antonioni-esque I mean, it took me a while to get on the wavelength just because these characters are so prickly and abrasive. Yes. And you get the sense and it's never made clear like they're rich. Like one of them owns a castle. Yeah. And they're allowed to go around Europe, which I mean, Compton did say she did herself that this is based on her life. Mm -hmm. So they are kind of what is the term is like rich, but lost. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to like this movie more the second time I see it because it takes a while to just adjust what the rhythm of the movie is. The fact that, you know, nothing really is going to happen no. or, or it, the, the plot isn't going to evolve in this like really obvious three act arc. Well, it has the whole movie is kind of like that, like repeating structure, because what happens at the end is what you see in the first scene. Yeah. So the for the first half, I was getting a little impatient with this movie. Mm. But then after a while, I did get on board like there is a particular I mean, it's like I said earlier. It's never entirely fun and beautiful, but it's never entirely horrible either. I mean, like, like it is fun. And that's like the thesis of the film yeah. that she like literally vocalizes. I thought this would be a journey of discovery where I would find something. 
and I haven't. And like, that's what the movie's about. I think this movie has like a feeling Mm -hmm. that is constantly evolving and going up and down throughout. And it's slightly disquieting. It's often, you know, very sunny and, and fun. It has that new wave swagger, that feeling that anything can happen. It has, you know, the vibe of like Jules and Jim without the energy, because that's not what she's going for. But even Compton dresses up in like male attire, like in Jules and Jim. But you're never quite settled in this movie. There's no. always something that feels just a little bit off. I mean, and, uh, that's perfectly the vibe she's clearly going for, because that's how the protagonist, Compton herself, feels throughout it. So it's a remarkable experience. I've never experienced anything quite like this movie. And it should be considered that like nothing like this movie existed at the time it was made either. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was this one or Norma Jean, but she went to con. I think Stranded played at con out of competition. And I think the next one did as well. And I mean, something that you keep hearing is that she won a special prize at con. I can't find any documentation of what that special prize oh, really? was. I don't doubt that mm-hmm. she won something. I mean, Variety didn't review the films. I think the French took the films a little more seriously. Like she went over there to Europe and she spent several years in France. Apparently was friends with Agnes Varda. And And she's like, I should have stayed. If I had stayed, I could have keep making movies, but I wanted to make it in Hollywood. Right. Well, before that happened in 1966, she did the plastic dome of Norma Jean, which Mm. is probably the movie that she'll be remembered for Norma Jean, which of course you can't hear that and not think of Marilyn Monroe, even though apparently when she conceived the script, she wasn't thinking of Marilyn Monroe. She had a friend from childhood who was named Norma Jean. She Mm -hmm. liked the name. But then, of course, you know, she realized, oh, maybe there might be parallels with that other famous Norma Jean. (laughs) And so this story, it's almost like magic realist the way that it plays out because you find these characters are kind of like wandering the desert and dancing and then a bunch of people pull up and they're all dressed you know like beetles or the monkeys or the dave clark five and they all start jamming out it has the energy of a hard day's night camera zoom in all over the place that has a score composed by michel legrand i thought about beyond the valley of the dolls a little bit <laughs> yeah it does definitely have the that beyond the valley of the dolls. <laughs> so norma jean the main character played by Sh- uh, sharon hennessy I'm going to try to explain this. She buys a plastic dome, Mm -hmm. which is delivered in this desert area in the Ozarks. So when you think of plastic dome, think of the giant things that you would see during winter and cold environments to play like soccer or tennis or something like that. Big dome. And it's and it's folded up in a crate Mm -hmm. that that is delivered. You don't need to follow any of the logic of this stuff. because Like the dome has giant neon stars in it. There's a revolving door to get in. She got delivered in a box. And then a couple of minutes later, it's a giant dome yes but anyway she goes with her boyfriend vance who's a singer to pick up this plastic dome which has again been delivered in a crate now norma jean has psychic powers so when she touches the plastic dome she gets a vision of this music group now as this happens three young musicians one of them by the way played by a young sam watterson in his film debut where were the sam watterson fans trying to hunt this film down yeah i mean has anyone asked him about his memories of working on this i don't know but anyway these three young musicians are just in the desert here and they happen along Well, she seemingly almost creates them yeah she manifests them yeah and, and she like touches them and says their name as if like oh now you are in the story these are your names so they come and they all team up to build the 
plastic dome or inflate it or whatever and create a performance space. Now, in these early scenes, as you alluded to, the film drifts freely between reality and fantasy without really delineating between the two. Like there's that scene early on, for example, where they're all dressed as woodland animals. Yeah, they just walk into a cabin that's seemingly abandoned and then they walk out and she's dressed as a bunny. Keep track of that. It's a metaphor for the movie. All the other characters are dressed as like animals and they're just kind of walking through the forest. Norma plays the piano on a tree trunk. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, much like, you know, Uncle Boon Me or something like that, it drifts in and out of Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Like, you don't need to follow the logic when it goes to the next scene. Now, the music performances fail to attract an audience, but Norma Jean's incredible powers of clairvoyance do. She accurately envisions several local disasters, including a guy trapped in a cave, kind of like Ace in the Hole. Mm-hmm. And not unlike Ace in the Hole, this creates a media frenzy. The men around her realize they can exploit this talent. And yes, the film becomes a parable about the exploitation of women in the entertainment industry. That Norma Jean, every time she uses this power, it makes her weak. It makes her sick. She sees things she doesn't want to see. But well, one of the people in her group, Bobo himself, is like, no. You got to keep going on the stage and keep doing this. Now, throughout, I mean, it's like Stranded, but much more so. Well, more stylized. Yeah, much more stylized. But it's a movie that tonally is like this wild ride. Um, It's exuberant at times. Mm -hmm, Um, Because there's lots of musical numbers. I mean, it's stunningly beautiful. These very picturesque, either desert or woodland landscapes. And all these like weathered faces of the people in the town where they were shooting that they're just like, all right, let's get these people. Let's put them in the audience. So they all look like real people watching these events. And just a remarkable, like almost like visual dictionary of of things you can do with the camera. Mm -hmm. There are overhead shots. There are long shots. There's also at times, you know, jangled editing and yeah. montage. Very Wellsian in yes. the way that it's shot. Oh yeah, lots of like low angles. Low angle, big shadows in the background. Yeah, but then, and then Antonioni-esque mm-hmm. at times. Antonioni-oni-oni-oni-esque. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was surprised at where it ended up, because I just, like, the way it was, you know, kind of building up, I expected it to go, oh, and then they push her too far, and maybe the thing burns down, but nope, that's not where it ends. I won't spoil it. Now, it's interesting, these movies being unearthed, because film history from this time has become so familiar the narratives are so mm-hmm. familiar that this feels like seeing them just refracted in a lot of ways i mean a movie like breathless which has become the french new wave movie that everybody would see and go oh i want to do something like this yeah i mean this has uh, these two movies have a bit of that energy that off-the-cuff energy but like breathless i mean it's it's so obvious to say but breathless is a very male movie it's mm-hmm. a very male gaze movie and and this is one that refracts that a bit but then also brings in other sorts of influence as well. well that's the thing is that like Compton was very influenced by everything that was going on but she was taking them and making them her own which then creates something new and it's frustrating that these movies could not have found even an art house audience because then they would have been refracted in different ways. And it would have just been really interesting to see where does the thread of this career go from here? Because Plastic Dome of Norma Jean does feel like it picks up on and enhances and, you know, the ideas of Stranded. Yeah. And, and who knows where it could have gone. But what we do know is that in Paris, uh, May 1968, around that time, she leaves Paris after being there for several years. 
She goes to Hollywood and she says that this was her biggest mistake moving away. She, you know, joined several women's groups. She joined the AFI. Apparently she showed her films at some like women filmmakers groups and they weren't, in her opinion, at least they weren't very encouraging. Like they would say, oh, you're, you're kind of a loophole case. You don't really count as a female director. And she said that she did have opportunities to direct television or other kind of journeyman stuff like that. Commercials. And too. she said, I don't want to do that. Like, it's just like pushing a button. Like, I want to be creative in my, the things that I do. And also, I've made two feature films. Give me one of those. I can do that. So she says that Hollywood crushed her spirit. Now, in 1988, out of nowhere, and I'm not certain about what led to this. There is no information about how Buckeye and Blue came about. And seemingly no one has seen it. Ten people have logged it on Letterboxd. Yes. But we've seen it. We've seen it. And it's fine. Yeah. I think uh, the main thing that it's famous for is that it has a spaghetti western score by Bruno Nicolai that was ripped off from another movie and put into this one. So, I mean, this movie, it's a, a kind of a family film aimed at younger people. Yeah, it's much goofier. It's like a kind of out-and-out out comedy, but it also deals with the exact same themes that our other two previous films deal with. Yes, and I do recognize it as from the maker of it because tonally it's not exactly what you think it's going to be given the genre. There's a, there's a lightness, but also a darkness that intermingle in a way that they it does in some of his or her early ones. Like the plot is about a young woman played by Robin Lively, who she's kind of in love with this local bandit. And when he runs off to fight in the Civil War, I believe, because <laughs> he says, oh, I'm going to teach the North, you know, something about Southern justice. He doesn't come back and she decides, I'm going to go out into the world with my friends. We're going to become bank robbers. Very inept ones, I should point out. And and we're going to also look for this person that I have a crush on. His name is Blue. So she's imagining in her mind like that Blue is the ultimate gentleman bank robber. You get these kind of, you know, fantasy sequences throughout the film as she's looking for him with her friends. And she's finding the reality is that, you know, robbing banks is not easy or robbing stage, robbing trades. This movie, I feel like if it was on Blu-ray and they, like scanned a print would look amazing. Yeah, because it has a big budget feels like i would be i would be curious to see it that way and see what it looks like compared to some of the earlier ones because on the vhs rip that we it watched, looks like a family tv movie <laughs> right but maybe i don't know maybe because mm -hmm. the earlier ones are just so visually imaginative but tonally the fact that it's sort of light and funny the fact that the robin lively teenage girl character is you know more mature than mm -hmm. the macho guys that yeah she's robbing banks with what it almost seems kind of like you know if you want to build that journey throughout her career, that is stranded, she's looking for something. In Plastic Dome of Norma Jean, she's crushed by kind of like this quest by the people around her. In Buckeye and Blue, what happens at the end of the movie is that the character realizes, I've been looking for this thing. It is not what I want. Mm -hmm. Because she finds out that Blue... I mean, Shocker is not a gentleman thief. He's just, you know, a scoundrel. And at the end of the movie, she literally tells him, I don't want this. Like, I don't want to be a robber. I'm going to find something else. Which then is followed by her waking up and it was all a dream, uh, which oh. was imposed on the film by the producer, who I checked has never produced anything else. He's like mostly a stunt guy, which I was very surprised by. And I feel like because this ending was changed, perhaps the rest of the movie was changed as well. I don't know. Compton has basically disowned this film. Right. So not a very happy experience. And that's the last film she directed. She wrote some other films. Yeah, she wrote Virginia Hill in 1974, a television film about 
about the partner of Bugsy. And that one's notable for being directed by Joel Schumacher. Wow. Yeah. But he also has a co-writing credit, which makes me think he probably took her script and rewrote it. So I think she also wrote a lot of other scripts that didn't get produced. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how a lot of people make their living in Hollywood, writing scripts that don't get produced. And today, though, she's 92 years old and still alive. Married to the editor of Jess Franco's Venus and Furs. So that's pretty great. Yeah, that's great. I hope that she is aware of these people discovering her films and being like, oh, wow, like this is amazing. Yeah. And it's a bummer that she couldn't get out. I, I don't even know how you would get it out. Like in the late 60s, an independent film with no distribution at all. That's not a genre picture. Yeah. So an interesting rediscovery. Check out the new Flickr Alley Blu-ray mm-hmm. that has wonderful restorations by UCLA. And yeah, just go on a little adventure. Now, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send them at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter, which is very important, and I read when, you know, you wake up out of bed and you like look at your phone and you're like, I got some new emails. And I was reading it. It's like, what? And your eyes came out like the mask. No, I put it down. And I was like, ah, I must have dreamed that. <laughs> I like, fell asleep <laughs> and woke up and looked at my, oh no, I did get this email. Title is just, thanks. Hey guys, a fan stumbled across your podcast and sent the link to me. So much fun. And thanks for the love. Hope all is well. Best Dave Dakota. Dave, nice. David Dakota. So that marks who are the filmmakers who have reached out to us after we did episodes? Lizzie Borden. Yes. David Dakota. And I think that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And that's a good uh, Love it. group of people. We did that Dave Dakota episode ages ago, too. Yeah. L- at least a year ago, for sure. David Dakota. <laughs> a year ago? I think more like three, four years ago. Uh, no. It was early, wasn't it? No, he? it wasn't early. Oh. I, no, I was in Kitchener at the time. Okay. Yeah, you know, we did it then. And David Dakota, if you folks don't know, he's the director of such films as Sorority Babes at the Slimeball Bolorama. Mm, Leather Jacket Love Story. Yeah, that's a really good one. A Talking Cat. Cat? 1313 Cougar Cults. Mm-hmm. Count- and literally countless other films. Love the guy. I think he's in the Christmas game now, right? He also did a lot of Vivica A. Fox movies. That's what I mean. Like, he's doing all of those kind of like Lifetime movies. The wrong something. The wrong Yes, this. and yeah. they're very popular, and he keeps making them, and I'm very happy uh, for him. Maybe I'll have to reach out for an interview. I have questions I could ask him. Why not? Can I Can I join? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Didn't you interview him for your Talking Cat article? That I came did out? a long time ago, but I want to do it again. Oh, yeah, we have more questions. Yeah. To ask him so thank you very much david we really appreciate like he didn't have to send an email i love david yeah Cohen. he's the best uh, i think we said in the episode we chatted with him at a convention nicest guy nice guy so our next letter is the top afi 100 edit so for patreon subscribers we went through the afi top 100 and we edited the episode of what we think should be there that's right we went through the list of the top 100 movies and we said take this one out take this one out keep this one take this one out Mm -hmm. you can see that on our patreon page and then we also arbitrarily changed the order of some yes put in some others from later lists are you telling me (laughs) that someone has created a list multiple people sent us lists of our new of our new edit so i very much appreciated it so i'm going to read out the order here of uh, the person that put it and there's like asterisks of like replaced by another film by the same director Jonathan Rosenbaum selection there's one that I laughed really hard because I guess we just you mentioned it in passing so I'm going to go through it really fast okay. from the bottom Toy Story Blade Runner Do the Right Thing Targets Top Hat Old 12 Angry Men <laughs> you said that you're like replace it with old because oh, of success, success. Yeah. Right. 12 Angry Men A Night at the Opera Titanic Sunrise A Song of Two Humans All the President's Men this sounds like a great list to me up to now Sullivan's Travels Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring, Unforgiven, Bringing Up Baby, Pulp Fiction, Easy Rider, Bride of Frankenstein, Duck Soup, Fargo, JFK, 
The General, The Wild Bunch, Rocky, City Lights, The French Connection, Shane, The Manchurian Candidate, Network, Something Wild, Johnny Guitar, The Third Man, Nashville, The Body Snatcher, All Quiet on the Western <laughs> that, Front. That was our, we replaced the Robert Wise movie with The Body Snatcher. That's right. Amadeus, Freaks, The Philadelphia Story, Pinocchio, Jaws, Taxi Driver, Streetcar Named Desire, Intolerance, King Kong, Double Indemnity, The Best Year of Our Lives, It Happened One Night, High Noon, Annie Hall, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Apocalypse Now, Bonnie and Clyde, Two. 2001 a Space Odyssey, The Grapes of Wrath, Chinatown Psycho, All About East, Star Wars, Singing in the Rain, The Graduate, The Wizard of Oz, Lawrence of Arabia, Casablanca, Citizen Kane. Now that's not 100, is it? No, absolutely so not. So th- that's our revised... Uh, yeah. Listen, folks, apparently that is our revised AFI Top 100 list. If I were building the list from scratch, that probably wouldn't be it. No, no, no. But in the moment when we went through it and we had to pick or, you know, kick the and, curve... And just one pro tour... Yeah. And and also judging on, well, does it deserve to be here or not? Mm-hmm. You know, putting personal preference aside. Um, yeah, it's a, not a bad list. No. Yeah, yeah I didn't good, see any that I was like, huh, there. what? Except yeah. for maybe old. Which Except is the for one maybe that old. sticks out like a sore thumb. So uh, thank you very much for everybody that uh, sent that in. I know that Emil Dirks did a list and Christopher, uh, I'm going to say your last name wrong. I apologize. Schwaljay also sent one in. Our next letter is... African Cinema Suggestion. Ooh, I always like this. Hey, Justin and Will. First time, long time, running from the winter wonderland of rural Pennsylvania, and your show has introduced me to a number of great artists. In that spirit, I submit my favorite newly emergent auteur, Limohang Jeremiah Mosesi. Born and raised in Lesotho, Mosesi has so far made just two films that are widely available, but each is rich with the poetry of life and the mise-en-scene of an accomplished master in the field. In particular, his 2019 masterwork, This Is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection, is one of the most unique and beautiful films I've ever had the pleasure of seeing. Uh, To those who've never seen it, I can only compare it, its resonance to Ikiru or Uncle Boonmi. Well, sounds good. That's a tall order of big promise. Whether you have the interest in covering a great new artist with an incomplete catalog, or if you consider including him in a greater compendium of modern African filmmakers, I'd at least recommend acquainting yourself with his work. Given the centralized nature of global capital and ergo film production, we in North America have shamefully little contact with the shamefully few internationally recognized artists from the African continent. Alongside Mosesi, there's Semben or Dijbril Diop Mambiti. Can you recommend a slate of films or directors that have piqued your interest uh, from Africa? Oh God, so Oof. listen, we did an episode on Osman Semben. Yeah. And I had a great time watching those films. You know, somebody who I'm interested in exploring is Safi Fay. I've seen people not familiar about her. She's a Senegalese filmmaker. I can't really speak to her, but we said on the Semben episode that we should do more African. We should. And we should. So let's put Safi Fay on the list. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, Not immediately, but that's going to happen soon. And thank you for the suggestion. Yeah, thank you very much for the suggestion. Like Semben is kind of like the one, like the the one one that if you're in a film history class, all right, we're going to talk about Semben. So it's like we've talked about, yeah, one African filmmaker and it's that. It's not like the place is very big and has different culture this week on our patreon what are we talking about will we're talking about the oscars oh you took you a moment you're like we have oscar I was fever ashamed. i was ashamed to say it but no we have oscar fever we are talking about fuck i'm leaning into it i love the oscars you love the oscars let's go to the horse races folks <laughs> we are predicting what will win and saying what should win love is a strong word in my case but yes we go through all of them basically it's just, you know, kind of what we did last week on our Patreon. We're like, yes, no, no, yes. But <laughs> yes, yeah. fiery hot takes on the Oscars. Yeah, if you year. want to impress all your friends, get all the right choices. Win your Oscar pool. I've Oh, have I been in an Oscar pool? I did with some friends once. Just as a joke, we went through it as we were all watching a 
together. In all my years of being in offices, I think I was in an Oscar pool once. <laughs> yeah. So. Did they have it and not let you know? They're like, we don't want Will. He's going to win. He's too smart. I didn't win. Next week, what are we doing, Will? We're exploring a filmmaker who has a new retrospective on the Criterion channel. We're- so everyone's talking about it, right? Well, after we do, mm-hmm. they will be. We're talking about Deepa... Don Raj, who is a documentary filmmaker working in India. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't know anything about her, but I saw this retrospective come up and I thought, I've never heard anyone talk about that's what we want, you know, places like Criterion to do, put these collections together to watch it. And I was shocked when I look on Letterboxd and her uh, most watched films has like 30 reviews. So let's get on it. Let's find out about her. Mm-hmm. Let's go on this adventure together, folks. If you're listening to this, you may have the Criterion channel. The films are very accessible. So go watch them and then come and listen to the episode that we're going to do about her. So until next week, my name's Will. <laughs> and my name's Justin McLeod. That's right. We reversed it this time. That's right. And uh, have a good week, folks. The balcony is closed. <laughs> <laughs> just like to thank some of our patrons who make this podcast possible they include randall delosier cat weasel bryce jones buff guy julio maria martino and lee elliott we could not do it without you so i was doing what i do every month at the start of the month going to do vinegarsyndrome.com and seeing what the new releases are it's like Christmas for me every month. Every month there's something I want. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not being paid to say this. <laughs> I mean, we'd love to be paid to I'd say this. I'd love to be paid. I would love it if they would send me free stuff. We just want free stuff. And frankly, I deserve free stuff. <laughs> yes. I deserve free stuff because I talk about these Vinegar Syndrome releases. I'm on Letterboxd plugging these mm-hmm. things. But yeah. you know what? Them in their boardroom, in their uh, 100-story office building I'm sure they own, are sitting back and going, we could send free stuff to them or they could just buy it and talk about it anyway. Yep, and that's and that's what's happening. But anyway, I'm always excited for something they put out. Mm-hmm. This month, I'm particularly excited for their partner label, the American Genre Film Archive, mm-hmm. is putting out a double feature of Taiwanese martial arts films. And Justin, you know, Justin is probably thinking they're stealing my shtick. Well, Agfa did distribute Thrilling Bloody Sword, and they reached out to me after I put the trailer and stuff out. That's right. And they had great success with it, so I think they went, we should get more Taiwanese stuff. Do you think Do you think it's you that caused this, this uh, Shaolin Invincibles 7 to 1 double Listen, feature? Listen, I don't want to say that I started a trend of all the other boutique blu-rays starting to do taiwanese stuff agfa had done like the sword of the claw and they had a like brawl busters which was a south korean film that was on that sword of the claw is a turkish film right? it is a turkish yeah. film but that's why i was just linking it to south korean which is that vibe were companies doing taiwanese stuff like fancy martial arts stuff before then i don't think so maybe in germany they were putting stuff out that's right yeah but none of the labels in north america were anyway i'm thrilled about these movies whether shallon invisibles i've we talked about that movie tons because it's the one where they fight the gorillas oh man i mean in a beautiful restoration no uh, extras though well this is why i brought it up mm-hmm. yeah no extras and i'm just saying and it's the same price as all their other agfa releases i'm just saying folks reach out to justin <laughs> yeah please if you were on a blu-ray label well reach out to me too but mm-hmm. more than anything reach out to justin because this man can do a good commentary track for you he can do a beautiful video featurette for you and you just get one of those Gold Ninja video releases. Mm-hmm. So for this release, I was like, oh, they could have done like a video essay on the star of the film. And I was like, oh, wait, I already did that for Revengeful Swordswoman. You already did the it. same star. 
I'll do it again, though. I don't mind. By the way, can people still get Revengeful Swords? Oh, yeah, it's very available. GoldNinjaVideo.com, they should pick it up. Yeah. And so, like, I like these kind of trends of, like, them trying to do different stuff, like these Taiwanese films, for example. Like, Shaolin Invincible on Blu-ray. I'm so excited about that. Oh, yeah, I'm really excited for this, too, because, I mean, Taiwanese martial arts movies Mm -hmm. are still a great untapped resource, I think. Yes. I mean, Taiwanese martial arts movies are a little lower budget, a little crazier sometimes Mm -hmm. than the Hong Kong ones. I'm a little tired of the same old Jackie Chan movies hopping from label to label. Yeah, I mean, can we talk about that for a second? Well, Arrow Video is putting out Hand of Death, that early John Woo film. Oh, by the way, I think it's so crazy that Criterion is putting out Last Hurrah for Chivalry, which nothing against that movie. I like that movie. I like it too. I'm just saying if Criterion really wants to pretend that they're the canon. Yeah. Last Hurrah for Chivalry? <laughs> yeah. Really? Well, like, I mean- That these... just reveals that they're, they're a business like any other. But they are a business like they any are. other. It's not like you're like, oh my God. Well, yes, they are. And that's, I wish people would treat them like it. Yes, I agree. I'm tired of every month they'll put out like, oh boy, Targets in a 2K restoration with the same commentary as the as the DVD. Okay, that is something that I was like, and then, come on. Targets has been promised and canceled and promised and canceled so many times. And then they come out and they're like, oh, we got a Richard Linklater interview. And it's like, that's all you got? Targets, a rich, targets. A rich text. There's so much you could talk about Targets. And then with that shoddy job you'll see people on twitter just oh thank god thank you oh man targets is entering the collection (laughs) come on who cares what you needed them to tell you it's a good movie i mean it was unavailable for a long time i think okay yeah so that's important but i mean we've talked about criterion before where they're kind of like eh, just phone it in (laughs) like we have so much stuff to do they probably have a team of five people but then again, like, like I, I think the Taiwanese stuff is great because the companies are like, can we do something else that's not like this Jackie Chan stuff is ridiculous. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I'm excited. Twin Dragons is being put out. Battle Creek Brawl again. 4K. It's, it's not 4K. I think it's just a 1080p release. Really? Yeah. Oh, it's shit. just a new scan. Okay, well. I mean, are you going to buy it again, Will? No. no. I, I don't really like Battle Creek Brawl. Yeah. But uh, have I bought it twice already? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, wait, wait. I own it twice already, too, because it came on the double pack that Shout Factory put out. That's right. And then I got, and then the, I got the 88, 88 films, films release. Uh, I hope people listening are able to follow this discussion. <laughs> They're not like, what is going on? I, okay. Justin and I are talking our own language here. <laughs> I have to say, though, the demand is probably higher from specific individuals than it ever has been. But they're reaching a wall here where they're like, what do we put out that people will buy? Because you see, like, I mean, we were we were joking about it. It's finally in 4K, Will. Burial Grounds. Oh, Burial Ground. I mean, that's a movie that Italian horror movies, mm-hmm. you know, even the worst of them just. <laughs> and you know what? I don't want to. I know, like Burial Grounds. I like whatever. Burial Grounds, yeah. too. Can you imagine? Like, I bought Burial Grounds when they put it out on Blu-ray. Yeah. It looks great. Why do I? I think somebody said it best. Is like, finally, I can see how the stock footage doesn't match with itself more. <laughs> it just, I only say this, like, I don't want to, people are like, well, if I want Burial Grounds, that's fine. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. It's just, I wish there's not that many resources. Because a lot of these companies are like two, five people. Yeah. I know that you need to make your money so you can do the little ones as well. And by the way, that's why Criterion is putting out all those Netflix movies. Because like every library mm-hmm. in America will buy a Netflix release of a Criterion movie. Yeah. A hundred percent. And Walmarts buy them too. Yes. And that makes 
like if they put out Merit Story, that's instantly ten times more money than mm. when they put out like I yeah. don't know name name something else they put out. So I don't think uh, my frustration is at the company. I'm trying to figure out like why when I see this stuff, I'm like, yeah. I know why. It's because you're tempted to buy it. On no, some, no, absolutely no, not. I disagree. I think no, on some subconscious no. level, on some co- subconscious level, you see that 4K battle kick brawl and you say, oh, I got the I got the out of date edition. Absolutely not. Because well, even the burial ground one, I did not buy that Blu-ray until right. I got it for discount at a convention from the Severn table. All right. So it, it's not you like I still I'm bought like, it though. I did. I like burial ground, yeah. but it wasn't like I need burial ground. You know what? Maybe some people out there, they need burial ground. All When we talk about this stuff, all we're really trying to champion is like more stuff new stuff and people will like like canadian international pictures supposedly they sell very well people really like I'm those glad. yeah and that they're getting out there and people are buying them and even that i was like they're all available online it doesn't matter mm-hmm. that you put them in a box people like you're curating something they want to check it out which is great that's <laughs> the point of all this yeah, let justin infomercial let justin do your special feature 